Russell, man, having prayer. Eternal Heavenly Father, we come before you today to acknowledge you as our Creator and Redeemer, and we want to thank you for going to such great lengths to win humanity back to trust and acceptance through the life, death, and resurrection of your Son on this earth. Uh, I ask that you fill this room with your presence now as we learn about Peter, your rock. Um, help us uh, draw some life lessons from the uh, things that he struggled with and the, uh, some things that we can apply to our own lives. Please continue to bless this group corporately and individually, and when you come again, may we all be standing ready. In Jesus' name, amen. Hopefully everyone received a um, question list. This is not a quiz. Um, the, uh, it's an honest attempt. We have two weeks of lessons on Peter. I anticipate that Tim will be back next week and give us the, the, his scoop on, on next week's um, perspective on Peter. Some of these questions kind of bridge the gap between this week and next week's lesson topics. But I have found in my reading that Peter has been a volatile, conflicted idea within our own church, having come out with other Reformation churches from the Catholic Church. We have somewhat of a um, struggle with how do we deal with terminology and, and concepts of who Peter was and what his role was and what his our current understanding of it. So basically these are thought questions. Um, if we have time, we'll kind of cover some of the things at the end. Some of the questions will actually be more appropriate to complete um, next week. But um, this is just kind of a, a thought initiator. So hopefully no one's offended by any of the questions or whatever. And, and hopefully you will have um, some text of your own to use as your basis for your answer so in case you differ from someone who's sitting beside you, you can ride home in the same car without um, conflict. So anyway, so lesson number eight, from folly to faith. I would like someone to read the key thought on Sabbath afternoon's lesson. The Apostle Peter was one of the central pillars of the early church. Jesus changed Peter from an unreliable but passionate disciple into a rock-like tower of strength in sharing the gospel. You know, that's kind of scary language for Adventist. One of the central pillars and a rock-like tower of strength. Uh, why are we so opposed to calling him the stone upon which the church is founded? Because we believe Christ is. Okay. Uh, someone read Ephesians 2.20. And again, this is going to be um, covered a little more in depth, maybe, with our individual study, if not Tim's study, next week. Actually, we need to go back to 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. You know, we have terminology here that says that the apostles were our foundation, foundation of our church. And that's what Christ built on for his church. The other issue we get into is with, well, who's an apostle? And an apostle is someone who's sent. And in the Bible, the New Testament, um, it's not only the 12 apostles that are listed as apostles. Other people who are not listed as being the 12 disciples are listed as being apostles. And so it kind of stretches our imagination a little bit on who are the apostles and who is the foundation of the church and, and how do they work as being our foundation? How do we build on them? Christ being the cornerstone. So anyway, this, this will address a little bit more next week because the terminology in this first 
key thought was so strong with terminology that might give someone pause, I thought we ought at least to introduce the idea. I'd like someone else to read, um, or someone to read the um, entire thought beginning with Peter's impulsive emotional character. Read that entire thought for Sabbath afternoon. Peter's impulsive emotional character has made him an interesting study. He was a disciple whose heart was in the right place, but he made mistakes. Peter's story especially helps us understand the role of emotions. When you are lost in a forest, your senses can take you only so far. See, hear, and smell, and still be lost. You need a compass and a map, something more than you have naturally. So it is in our spiritual lives. What we feel is not the final test of what is true. We need something more, something outside of us. We need a spiritual compass and map. Emotions are a vital part of the Christian life, but not the most important part. Without appropriate care, they even can be dangerous. Peter was someone whose emotions got him into trouble more, than, more often than not. However, once placed under submission to Jesus, his emotions and zeal became powerful tools for the Lord's work. Are emotions bad? No. no. Okay. Do you think Peter was less emotional after his conversion? No. 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 Just more control. I'm sorry? You, you said more? More control. Okay. Then what does change when we are converted? Is it our intelligence? Do you become smarter when you become a Christian? No, but maybe our degree of understanding. Okay. You could say that we become smarter. I mean, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And as we get to know and embrace and reflect the character of God, uh, I would suggest that we become wiser. So there, there could be a benefit other than just living a holier life than your neighbor to becoming a converted Christian. Correct. Okay. Our emotions, do they change at all by conversion? They can. Our prejudices can be um, broken down to be very emotional or soft. Okay. Wait. Just trying to think through this, I don't see a prejudice as being an emotion. It's kind of my my response to a stimulus. Maybe emotion is a response to a stimulus. Sometimes we become more compassionate, more of a love for our fellow man, therefore maybe our emotions. Okay. Maybe they're other directed more instead of self-directed. Okay. Our ability of making decisions, what some people call the will, how is it changed by conversion? Or is it? Becomes his will. Well, Okay. We hear a lot about that terminology in, in, the, in religious writings is that we um, submit to God and it concerns me a little bit because... Maybe our desires merge. Exactly. I mean, Christ in the garden said, not my will, but thy will be done. And yet, he still had the ability, capability, and the inclination to choose his will. And each time he chose for his father's will to be done, every time he was confronted with that... When he made that choice, his own will was strengthened to face it the next time. So that when he was hanging on the cross and had the power to save himself, he still chose his father's will. So the ability to make a decision doesn't change, but our likelihood that we'll choose the same thing increase. Yes? Our innate, inborn IQ has not necessarily changed. But because we have come to know Christ, we will make different choices than probably may have made if we were atheists or... Okay. I have a, a friend who lives in North Carolina who 
has made some life choices that I fortunately did not. Um, he ran with a different group of friends in high school than the type of friends that I ran with, and he, he took certain chemicals into his body that now have changed his ability to make decisions. And so he is reaping the consequences of his choices. And my Christian outlaw, I mean, it wasn't because I was a converted Christian that I did this, okay? I was coerced by a very forceful father who um, had external controls on my life. <laughs> if I can put it politely. And um, so I didn't have opportunity on occasion that maybe my friend who I have in North Carolina did. Yes? I'm still wondering, as you mentioned, I'm still wondering if you actually have the same freedom of will, the ability, uh, when you're not, you don't have Christ in your life. If you look at the demoniacs, you look at the prostitutes, and the concept in the Bible is that when the devil possesses a person, at whatever level we're talking about, you lose the ability to make certain decisions as freely as you do Christ is in your life. I think it's excellent. You know, I think we are more free as Christians after conversion than we were before. And just think about terminology here, okay? We talk about people being demon-possessed. I haven't heard the concept of being God-possessed. I have heard of people being very religiously driven, even to point of flying airplanes into buildings and you know, other things. And I have um, close family members, let's put it that way, who are more driven in certain religious directions than I am. Maybe good, maybe bad, but it seems to me that as Christians, we are more free to make choices than we were when we were truly not following God. And that God alleviates some of our Truly, if we truly follow him, you know, and understand who he is, that we are more free than we would be if we were not converted Christians. And yet, the world's perception, because many times we as organized religion have mechanisms and constraints on our behavior external to, so that we can conform to a religious way, and so... The devil is a very adept at propagating that idea as being, oh, as if you're a Christian, you're going to be a narrow-focused individual who has limited choices and on and on. And yet, truly, if you are following God, you know, we have more choices and we have life and life more abundantly. And isn't that what Jesus said? That came to set the captives free. We think in terms of you know, well, he came to save you and take you to heaven, you're free from earth. But I really believe that he came to set people free that were addicted, compulsed, you know, confined by their own their previous choices, blinded by their own life, and let them be free to see all the choices that there are and free to choose other choices. That's true, and I think that some of our terminology has restricted us. I grew up as a third generation Seventh-day Adventist, and so I've been kind of schooled in certain sacred terms. She used the word submission to God. And the way that I grew up understanding that term was I had a fairly narrow focus. And what was acceptable behavior for me was fairly narrowly defined by my church, school, 
pastor, parents, whatever. And submission, I had the idea of, was fairly a narrow constraining thing rather than an opening thing. Someone read Galatians 5, 22 and 23. A very familiar passage, but I'd like for someone to read it from whatever version they have. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against these things there are no such law. So, self-control. We were talking about emotions and what's the difference in our emotions and our our intelligence and our decision-making and everything else um, after conversion than before conversion. And I think that the end thing that we talk about here is self-control, and yet in many instances, um, self-control is not a valued part of a Christian walk. And that how our emotions differ when we are converted Christians is what we do with those emotions. Jumping ahead a little bit in our story for Peter, we have several texts describing his behavior after the resurrection and ascension of Christ. He was the first to talk, still, you know. If anyone asked a question, he was the first to blurt out something. When Christ gave him a revelation of, of eating potentially unclean things and this vision of um, trying to get an idea through his head, you read the, the narrative and it's very vigorous. <laughs> I mean, it's not this guy who's saying, Lord, you know, that just doesn't sound right. I mean, it's almost as if he's screaming back at God saying, you know, at the top of his lungs, no, 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 you know, this can't be right. This doesn't fit my idea of what I should be doing. So hopefully we are not becoming passive, emotionless beings. And I think that's one of the things we have to look out for. If our religion is making us emotionless or less involved in our environment or less involved in responding to the, what we come in contact with, then that may not be God who is doing that to, for us. The concept of demon possession versus God possession is something that we really don't, don't see that much in, in Scripture. I think that might be the reason is, if you take it down to the very basics, what does the word possession mean? Ownership. What does ownership mean? Control. So if somebody is said to be demon-possessed, that implies that Satan has control over them. He exercises control by coercion and uh, lack of free choice. Whereas if we were to say we're possessed by God, then we're putting those attributes on God. And we know that God doesn't control us, force us, force our will or anything. So that's why I don't think there's that word possession we're talking about God. There's the word submission, which well, I think is a little more appropriate that regard, since it's our choice to do what God requires or asks. I don't know that Satan can control our will either. My understanding is the problem comes is when we freely exercise our choice and our will in cooperation with God's government, then the will becomes molded after, you know, after what we worship. Conversely, if we exercise our will uh, with choices that are not healthy, then our will becomes molded after a different government. And to be to be said to be possessed by a devil, possessed by Satan, I believe that it, that just means he's working in our lives because we have we have given him a foothold and we have allowed him and, and essentially by default invited him in and, and given him control of our will. He, he can't take it. 
Yeah, but once we've done that, then he does take full control and does whatever he wants with us, basically, because we've allowed him to do that. We become blinded to right anything that we are we can do of ourselves. Right our choices. We do see um, other terminology in Revelation elsewhere of the beast and the beast being representative of, of Satan's kingdom and how it is a coercive kingdom. We do not see, well, at least I do not see Christ's kingdom as being coercive. Although others, I mean, some people do, you know, see God's um, kingdom as being coercive. I don't see God's, um, I don't see God's kingdom as being coercive, but I do see uh, Satan as using force and other things to gain his um, control of our lives. And in those people who are truly, fully demon-possessed, they have lost their self-control. And their ability to make these decisions. And the ability to make decisions by having surrendered this over a period of time. And we can look at the, the end result. We talk about here in, in, our, in this class about the sealing process. Christ's kingdom and someone who is sealed in his kingdom appears to be someone who is so firmly sealed, so firmly rooted in their belief about who God is and following him that they will not choose something other than what would be pleasing to him rather than being sealed or marked by, for the, the, the beast kingdom in which they are controlled by someone. So I think there's a fundamental difference there. I just want to point out that in Galatians in verse 24 and 25, it really explains it. It says right after what you just read, mm-hmm. uh, now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, we're not tempting ourselves anymore to follow sin. And if we live in the Spirit, we let us also walk by the Spirit. So the Spirit of God becomes part of who we are and choose what the Spirit wants to do. I was going to come to that same thing from another favorite text in this room, um, the James 1, 13 and 15. When someone is tempted, he shouldn't say that God is tempting him. God can't be tempted by evil and God, God doesn't tempt anyone. I don't, I also would go along with controlling anyone. Everyone is tempted by his own desires as they lure him away from the ideal. What's the idea and, of being born in And, and trap him. Yeah, and then the result is, is sin. And we give that up. Well, the thing I'm struggling with myself right now is the path to heaven is narrow. It's like, uh, what's the t- uh, camel trying to pass through the needle or the eye of the needle or whatever, but... And, you know, the more you know, the more accountable you are, the less decision, you know, the, the narrower it gets, you know, you're, the more you know about God's law, the fewer decisions you can make if you wish to travel on that path, if you wish to continue forward, and the more you have to give of yourself, the less decisions you can make. It's not, I mean, you are free, yes, but in, in, in one term, in, in one way you are free, but in another way you're completely giving yourself up. You have to be ultimately self-giving to continue on that road. Can I explain it like this? Uh, if we think about traffic laws, we have more freedom driving down the street if everyone obeys all the traffic signals, etc. The same thing with social mores. If we are polite and um, and acceptable to you know so have our social mores in place, we're more accepting by other people into their homes or into their fellowship and in any place that we're at. And it's the same thing with with Christ. 
Um, we have that freedom, but that freedom still has its um, walls, should I say, and, and borders and, and boundaries. Everything does. Even freedom has its boundaries. Just like Paul said, I think all things. The you talk about are, are there, I mean, if you don't do what the law says, then you step out of that boundary. It's not like there's a, there is a brick wall in the sense it's, it's a consequence. It's, you know, it's not it's not a punishment. It's right. a consequence stepping of not doing that, stepping out. So, like it talking about social mores, if you don't follow the social mores, then you're outside bounds of the community, and there's that wall or that that consequence of not following them, not being accepted. It's like Paul says in, in uh, Colossians, I think, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. <laughs> All things are permissible, but I will be mastered by none. You know, dovetailing what Dean said, that if if you step beyond the quote boundaries of the government of God, uh, He's not going to hate you. He's not going to He's not going to be required by holy judgment to inflict punishment of death on you. The consequence is a natural consequence of like defying the law of gravity. There's a law of a lot of um, analogies to what the Christian life is, and. If we're looking for a destination, we do have to make choices on other directions we are not going to go. Okay? Right. Having said that, the lesson started out with this compass and, and map analogy. And I thought they missed one key element to their analogy. And that is, unless you know where you are, a compass and map is worthless. Okay? You don't have a starting point. I love to backpack. Haven't done it in many years. Prior to children um, era, um, BCE, the um, wanderlust got to me, and I'd take my backpack and hike off into the Southern California mountains, and uh, by myself, and I'd leave at least a general clue as far as where they should search me with the helicopters if I didn't come back, you know. And then I'd, I'd take off, and several times I had great maps with me. I always had great maps and had a good compass. Well, I will have to tell you that sometimes I had to follow a stream bed to find out where I was because I had lost placement on that map, and I had no clue where I was going, and I was heading in the wrong direction, not because I didn't have a compass. It's just I didn't have, I didn't have a clue where I was. I wanted to make an analogy to a little gadget. I love gadgets. Um, you look at my belt, and I, I walked in the store the other day, and the lady said, what kind of doctor are you? <laughs> 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 anyway, um, I like gadgets, and my family got me another one, to GPS. And the more expensive the gadget you get, the more options it gives you as far as where you're gonna, how you're gonna get up to your end destination. You and I are not making those same decisions that he's talking about. The trials and the decisions of trimming off unwanted decisions unwanted places to go and unwanted things and non-helpful behaviors and whatnot are different from him and from me, okay? That's why we can't have all those little set of rules. Right. The rules that work for me do not work for you and vice versa. Often in our humanness, we choose to associate with other people who have similar rules and, and, and like rules and we feel comfortable in our little packets of rule-bound behavior, thinking very poorly of people who are on the other side of the wall who have other 
different set of rules, and yet we're all heading in the same direction, hopefully. But that that's determined upon, yes, do we have the same goal? Do we have the same God we're looking at? Okay? And have we plugged in the right thing? Now, this morning, I hadn't used my little gadget in, you know, a couple of weeks. It's a toy, you know. And so I hadn't turned it on, and so it thought I was in another location. And so as I was driving, you know, I was going to use this as an illustration today, so I plugged it into my car and, you know, started, started it up. And I got almost here before it figured out where I was. <laughs> a lot of times it said it could not see the satellites because there were trees in the way. And I think that's very instructive of our Christian life. Sometimes we have to get certain things out of the way so that we can see clearly what the road marks are. Okay? If I truly were wanting to follow this gadget here, for one thing, I'd have to know where I was going. And the second thing, it would have to be able to look at the satellites to tell where I was. If I'm going along and I lose satellite contact, the recommendation is not to speed up. Okay, but to slow down and go a little more slowly until you're re reoriented to where you are. And I think that also is important in our Christian lives. If we don't know where we are, that's not the time to speed up and go off in some wild direction. And sometimes we are discombobulated as far as where we are in, in relationship to God and to and our behavior and what's appropriate and everything else. And that's the time to go softly. That's not the time to join out and join some wild group because they're going somewhere. They may be going the wrong direction. Character is the pattern of the will and thoughts developed over time as a result of repetitive decisions in a certain direction. What's that from? Moses. I've heard of Character is the pattern of the will and thoughts developed over time as a result of repetitive decisions in a certain direction. Now, think about it. As I tell my patients, um, they ask me, you know, what's going to happen? Well, you know, three months from now, ten months from now, whatever. I say, well, my name's Moses, but I'm a poor prophet. <laughs> so I think character, what we're trying to develop here is habits that keep us out of trouble. Okay. When, and someone over here was talking about prejudices before, and how when we saw something, we may respond to something. Our character is learning a better response by God's grace, to respond in a more appropriate way to a stimulus that maybe is not our first warm fuzzy. And so we grow in grace. I'm somewhat fearful of the analogy of putting on Christ's robe because that when I go to the store, the clothing is completely assembled. Christ has a perfect character, but how I put it on is not all at once. It's not tailor-fit to me. And that analogy of a robe, you know, we've talked kind of negatively of covering up something, but also of accepting something that doesn't fit you. Our garment of righteousness is tailor-fit for us by God, by both our experiences and by our sojourn in life, and that we often do not put on the whole garment day one. And now let's tie that a little bit further and say that the garment is the white garment, we just fit in it white. 
Do I have a little bit of weight here? Or Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Have our characters changed a little bit so it fits in that sleeve a little bit better? Yes. The first thing on your list here, Peter was not converted after the denial of Christ. When you look at Peter's life as an arc of putting on the robe of righteousness, and that we tend to believe when Jesus said, when you're converted, feed my sheep. You know? Well, Peter wasn't far off. Even before that, if you look at John 6, Jesus is saying, you know, he's done that, eat my body, drink my blood, and everybody's leaving him speech. So uh, from that time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And that's in verse 66. Uh, you do not, uh, do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So it, even that was way before he denied Christ. He, his heart was in the right place. You know, he may not have been converted, but he knew what he wanted, and he knew what he saw, and he believed it. That question was put on there to have us think about what conversion is. Okay, We probably don't have time enough to talk about that, but um, um, at least not today. And about the robe of Christ, you know, right. talking about putting it on bit by bit. Right. He had a good bit of it already. You could see that his he knew uh, where he wanted to go, and he knew how to get there. Maybe he wasn't there yet, but he was definitely headed in the right direction. Okay. Zooming right along, Sunday's lesson. <laughs> Just some ideas about the call of Peter and the other disciples. The text that was quoted in, in the um, lesson was Matthew four eighteen through 20. I would like someone first to read for us John 1, 35 to 42. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. He turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which church, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah through Christ. He brought him him and said, You so you are Simon, the son of John? You shall be called Cephas. Okay, so we're at the river. John is preaching and baptizing. He has a whole bunch of disciples around him of his own. And he makes this proclamation. And this is probably a few days after Jesus himself was baptized. And John makes this proclamation. And so these people go off and kind of follow after Christ and call him the rabbi and start following him. And, and Peter is summoned by his brother to come and, and join the group. So this is at one point in time, and then things go along, and Christ makes a, you know, if you keep reading, he goes out and preaches, and then we come to Luke 5, 2 through 11. Someone read that. He saw two boats pulled up on the beach. The fishermen had left them and were washing the nets. And Jesus got into one of the boats, it belonged to Simon, and asked him to push off a little from the shore. Jesus sat in the boat, taught the crowd. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, Push the boat out further to the deep water, and you and your partners let down your nets for a catch. Master, Simon answered, We worked hard all night long and caught nothing, but if you say so, I'll let down the nets. They let them down and caught such a large number of fish that the nets were about to break. 
So they motioned to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full of fish that the boats were about to sink. And when Simon Peter saw what had happened, he fell on his knees before Jesus and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. He and the others with him were all amazed at the large number of fish they had caught. The same was true of Simon's partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid, and from now on you'll be catching men. And they pulled up the boats on the beach, left everything, and followed Jesus. So this is a sequence. You know, sometimes we have this idea that Christ showed up at the, at the Sea of Galilee, said, Follow me, and they dropped their nets and went zooming off in craziness. Really, just craziness, you know? And yet, first, they had been followers of John, okay? Then John had said, hey, this is the guy you need to be following. And they had started following him and had gone over and associated with him for at least some period of time. And then Christ comes by where they're working and says, let's go fishing. And it's like, no, 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 we're the fishermen, you're the rabbi, okay? And then with the catch... And then he, he recruited them, okay? And they really were not apostles and, and, or sent out until two years later. We often think of them as being suddenly endowed with these wonderful gifts and sent out, etc. No, they, they weren't sent out until about two years later um, after following Christ for quite some time. Why is the point of the leaving the nets important? The, the lesson asks this, you know, why, why do they talk about leaving the nets? What does that mean? Why is it important? Change in your life. Change occupation. Changing your life, okay? If you learn... Now, I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist or any of those people. <laughs> if you look at human behavior, what is top on the threatening things for men? Loss of job. Sorry, ladies, it's not loss of you. The reason, the reason it's loss of jobs is because of loss of respect. respect right. Identity. Identity and respect and who they are and what they do and everything is a loss of job. What's number one for women? Relationship and stability. Okay? I found out about two months ago that potentially my employer was going to change drastically in about four months, six months, whatever down the road. Okay? I did not go home and tell my wife, you know, guess what? We're unsettled again. That would have done her no good. First, I had to figure out what's going on. Then we'll talk about it. So... Changing jobs is a big deal. Changing stability is a big deal, etc. And it talks about um, Peter being married, and I don't know how much this is about making sure that he's not a pope and how much he's job security and all that sort of stuff is important. Why did Christ do the miracle of the fishes? I mean, it doesn't say, but I mean, what's your idea? Why did he do the miracle of the fishes? Was it just because he wanted to show, hey, listen, I'm God? They could depend on him, take care of him. Okay? He supplied their needs. Okay. Later on, he said, when I sent you out two by two, I didn't send you with any money, without a stick, and without a change of clothes, and did you ever need anything? And they said, not a thing. We had everything we needed. Okay? So he was proving to them that he could take care of them. Second idea. Any other ideas? What was Peter's immediate response? I'm a sinner. He realized who he was. He realized where he was. And who he was dealing with. Now, we often get the idea, he said, depart from me, I'm a sinner. If you read the narrative, it says, he fell at his knees. You don't fall backwards at someone's knees. He was rushing toward him. He was, he was in the same boat. He was still in Peter's boat. Okay? 
And Peter goes over right in front of him and says, depart from me. Not because he wanted him to jump out of the boat and walk away. It was an acknowledgement of who he was and who Jesus was. And so Christ gave him an inkling of where he was, where they were. GPS navigation start point. Number two, he gave them assurance that he would supply all their needs. Any, any other reasons why he might have given all these fish? Show them that they would be fishers and could convert okay. a lot of people. What their job title was going to be. Anything else? Peter and his partners, the four of them, were leaving their business. He gave a dowry to the fishing partners and to the families, saying, here's next month, don't worry, I've got it covered. Just an idea. Why would four fishermen leave their business, everything they had to do, and go off and follow this rabbi? We have to remember, this book is not written to 21st century Christians. It was written to people 2,000 years ago, and these events happened 2,000 years ago. They didn't happen in this current culture. So this has always bothered me, that Christ could waltz up to the, the sea, perform a little miracle, and they just drop everything and walk off and leave. In doing some of the study for this week, I came across some things that were about Jewish education and how Jewish people grew up. It was the father's responsibility, based on Deuteronomy 6 and 7, to teach his children a trade and the Torah. In communities, in towns, they developed community schools, elementary schools. You began at five years of age and went to about 12. During that time, you memorized the Torah. The first five books of the Bible, you memorized by heart. Now, you had certain teaching aids. You had this little song. It was in song. In the synagogue, the cantor. The reason they had a cantor is they had these songs. That's how you memorize the, the, the word. It had meter to it. A lot of Genesis is in poetry form and whatnot. And so you memorize this long song, the first five books. By the age of 12, you knew that cold. From 12 to 15, you learned the rest of the Old Testament by heart. By heart. Okay? By 15, if you were good enough, you could apply to... Upper division. I have all the names of the places, but you don't care about the Hebrew names because I can't pronounce them anyway. If you were not good enough, at 12, you had become a member of society and you then learned your trade. You became an apprentice in whatever your father had you to be an apprentice of, fisherman or whatever. And so Peter and John and James and these guys had been doing their trade since 12 years of age and they were good at it because their, their parents had, had schooled them in the trade of fishermen. But the number one goal, if you're really good, you got to be a rabbi. It was always the utmost um, privilege to be a rabbi. You didn't become a rabbi until you're 30. Why did Christ start his ministry at 30? Anyway, you could not become a rabbi until you're 30. So from about 15 to 18, you were learning the church fathers, the traditions, and all that sort of stuff. And about 18 to 20, you got married, if you were still on the rabbi track. And then about 18 to 20, if you were good enough, you appealed your case to the rabbi by going and showing off how much you knew and how much you could say by memory and how keen your insight was and how smart you were and all that sort of stuff. Who was Christ coming and talking to? The flunkies. 
the tradesmen. They had already lost their shot. They would have loved to be a rabbi. They, they were following John, but they still have to go back home and, and do the, the family business because they were, they were not able to do it. You always appealed to the rabbi to be a disciple. You, the rabbi never chose you. And here came a rabbi, Christ. And even though he was a lesser rabbi, he was this young guy, a young Turk who no one knew about or whatever. He came through and proved that he was somebody and he was choosing them. So the families would not have been upset at them going off to become rabbis. This was a good thing. Much different concept than what we have as far as our... So I think this goes back to the concept in this class that you need to be thinking about why things happened and it wasn't craziness. Faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is a relationship based on evidence and experience in which you're walking with someone. And so anything that doesn't make sense to you You need to read twice or three times or whatever and keep connected because it's not something that's craziness. They had a good reason to leave their nets. They had been financially provided for. They had been assured financial stability. And they were given the top job in the country. Who wouldn't jump at that? Yes? In a few months' time, a lot of these fishermen up around Alaska or other, you know, prolific places like that, can uh, provide for the whole year. Yeah. We're running out of time. Let's bow our heads. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word. We thank you for the examples of others who've gone before us. And if we stand taller than they or see farther than they, it's because we stand on their shoulders. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for so much for the blessings of your spirit. We ask that you continue to send your spirit with us, that we may be guided, that we may learn of you, that we may make decisions and develop characters after your likeness. Be with us this Sabbath day.